In 2021, research by Future Forum found that just 3% of Black knowledge workers were interested in returning to the office full-time. Compare that to 21% of white knowledge workers who wanted to return to the office. Black knowledge workers, reports the LA Times' Samantha Masanaga, have enjoyed the break from office politics, discrimination, and microaggressions, and few have any interest in returning to pre-pandemic norms. Disabled, queer, and neurodivergent people report similar feelings. It's easier to do your work when you're not also navigating the intricacies of a workplace and work culture that weren't created with you in mind. Now, few people would admit to expressing bias at work. Few would see their business-as-usual behavior as hoops others have to jump through to be included. The workplace is a site of cultural assimilation. You're listening to Strange New Work, a special series from What Works that explores how speculative fiction can imagine new approaches to work. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Our idea of what's appropriate or acceptable in public life is a product of conquest. White, non-disabled, heterosexual, cisgender people with straight-sized bodies made the rules, and everyone else has to learn them. The trappings of the dominant culture are presumed to be, quote-unquote, normal, or in our case, professional. And people from the dominant culture don't have to adapt to be accepted in the workplace. But people from non-dominant cultures must adapt to be taken seriously and belong. Now, dominant here is a key word. I don't simply mean the majority culture or a culture most people in the office identify with. I mean the culture that dominates and by extension, subjugates other cultures. In the world of Anne Leckie's Imperial Ratch trilogy, humans have expanded into hundreds of different solar systems and developed unique cultures, governments, and languages. Here's author Anne Leckie in an appearance on the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast to explain. The Ratch Empire, essentially, its origin is actually a Dyson sphere. But in fact, I think that the empire that's grown up around it has, I think, almost no contact with its original place of origin. But it's just this huge, expansive empire that's always moving outward and sort of appropriating any systems that it comes across that have resources. Uh, and I guess they think of themselves as representing civilization and humanity. And they think of people who maybe don't match their definition of humanity as being not entirely human and not, you know, worth paying much attention to. But they really see themselves as being a force for good and for civilization. And they're, they're bringing light to the world, which, you know, the people who get annexed would argue with. The word Rachai is the word for civilized in the Rachai language. The empire claims a monopoly on appropriate etiquette, religion, art, and economy. They believe their culture is the only civilized human culture. Conversations about the people from annexed worlds drip with arrogance and contempt. 
The books are narrated by an AI that was once the mind of a huge spaceship. The ship, Justice of Torin, was thousands of years old and participated in many annexations. But the ship itself was destroyed, leaving the AI in the body of just one of its human hosts. In the second book of the trilogy, Ancillary Sword, the narrator has become a high-ranking military officer thanks to some internal politics that are much too complicated to get into here. In her position as fleet captain, the narrator offers an unusual perspective. She knows Ratchai culture and customs inside out. She has no problem whatsoever passing for a civilized human being. But having been on the ground for many annexations, she's also witnessed the destruction of countless cultures and the enslavement of millions of people. She knows their customs, too, and sings their songs. The narrator still has more in common with the colonizers than the colonized, but she's a powerful person who has more perspective than most in her position. Ratchai public life is highly ritualized. For instance, gloves are a necessity. Bare hands are considered obscene. People dress plainly, but use jewelry as symbols of their house and relations. Speaking to anyone of a higher rank requires asking permission and using a particular form of address. The quality of tea one offers a guest and the dishware meals are served on is a display of power or a tool for insult. Lecky uses the intricacy of customs and etiquette in Ratchai culture to demonstrate the stark divide between colonizers and the colonized, as well as the strict hierarchy that polite society ruthlessly observes. The reader really gets the sense that without growing up in the upper classes of the Ratchai Empire, one would have a really hard time learning what was necessary to rise up the ranks. And full assimilation? Well, it's the only way to even have a chance in public life. Empire and etiquette are two sides of the same coin in the world Lecky built as they are in our own world. Now we can contrast the imperialism of Lecky's stories with the emerging expression of indigenous futurism. Coined by Grace Dillon, an indigenous studies scholar of Anishinaabe and European descent, indigenous futurism is a category of art, literature, and music that centers indigeneity and indigenous people to reimagine the past, present, and future. Dylan appeared on the CBC podcast Unreserved with Rosanna Deerchild to explain. Indigenous futurism is a area where indigenous writers can create thought experiments in a scientific sense and center indigenous people within that world and in the process of that, sharing the values and ethics that are connected to science, which is ceremony, singing, dancing, all forms of art, along with growing plants, developing medicines, creating space rockets. (laughs) (laughs) Space rockets and canoes, that's us. And space canoes. Thank you. These artworks connect science and thought experimentation to the values and ethics of indigenous cultures. 
Indigenous futurism is unique not only for centering Indigenous people, but also for communicating a worldview that encompasses varied relations to time, space, and reality. Instead of assuming binary, linear, and empirical ways of knowing, Indigenous futurism transmits a cultural experience of reality. In fact, Indigenous futurism often directly confronts the hegemony of taxonomic Western systems of thought. These stories give us science without the trappings of empiricism or the scientific method. Métis storyteller and scholar Chelsea Vow writes that her project is to make, quote, space for Métis to exist across time, refusing our annihilation as envisioned by the process of ongoing colonialism and questioning the ways we are thought to have existed in the past. In Vowell's short story, Unsettled, she imagines a near-future energy crisis that requires the vast majority of the human population to go into a 150-year hibernation. But someone needs to watch over the equipment and all those sleeping people. The world governments come up with a plan. They enlist Native volunteers to work in shifts, going in and out of hibernation, and in exchange, they'll receive at least some of their land back. We see volunteers from one shift wake up, meet each other, and wrestle with their own identities and relations in the process. They use different forms of address, different cultural backgrounds, different pronouns. If the settler reader requires a reminder that Native or Indigenous is not a singular identity, there is plenty to jar the memory. And there is also plenty of tension to work through as the volunteers set about the work they volunteered for. Now, some volunteers here have ulterior motives. What if they could sabotage the hibernation and rid the land of their colonizers? It's not spoiling the story to say that at least one person succeeds. Val writes in her commentary on the story that sometimes imagining otherwise means imagining terrible things. She writes, quote, That's the thing about fiction. It allows us to imagine otherwise, and sometimes what we are imagining isn't pretty or even something we'd ever want to see happen in real life. We can write things that seem really negative, but that contain so much hope it cannot be contained. Both Leckie's trilogy and Val's story imagine the horror of colonization and subjugation. Leckie imagines it through a settler mindset, even if the settler at the center of the story didn't really get a chance to weigh in on the morality of her actions. Val imagines it through the perspective of someone whose own culture and kinscape have faced the persistent and ongoing destruction wrought by colonialism. It's notable that both works use etiquette and propriety as tools for exploring the two positions. It's notable, but not surprising, since etiquette and propriety are key tools for colonization and domination. Groups can be subjugated by physical violence, but they can also be subjugated through cultural, emotional, and social violence. In the workplace, we call this professionalism. And professionalism is better understood as white supremacy culture. 
Tima Oaken originally offered his description of white supremacy culture characteristics in 1999. Some of the characteristics are perfectionism, right to comfort, either-or thinking, belief in one right way, and individualism. Plus nine more. More recently, he wrote this about the work. Quote, Our institutions not only value these characteristics, they to some extent require them and constantly reproduce them in order to benefit from them, which is why they are so prevalent in our culture and institutions. White, middle, and owning class power brokers embody these characteristics as a way of defining what is normal and even aspirational or desired, the way we should all want to be. We know this because of how those who do not belong to the white middle and owning classes are required to adopt these characteristics in order to assimilate into this desired norm, when such assimilation is allowed. When you read a novel like one from the Imperial Rouch trilogy, or you watch an episode of Foundation, or you screen a film like Dune, supremacy culture whacks you over the head. It's hard not to see how Rachai etiquette or the customs of Trantor or the politicking of House Harkonnen and House Artreides are meant to reinforce hierarchy. These systems exist to define who is better or more important than others. But in the office? Well, it's harder to see there, especially if you come from white settler heritage. Professionalism seems to be so normal and uncontested that you don't even notice it. But the rules of professionalism, really a system for regulating conduct, is as contrived as the rules of any fictional culture. Systems are enduring and self-correcting. That's Charlie Gilkey. Charlie's new book is Team Habits, How Small Habits Lead to Extraordinary Results. The third chapter is all about cultivating a culture of belonging at work. And Charlie's point about systems being enduring and self-correcting? Well, that applies equally to equitable systems and inequitable systems, just systems and unjust systems. They are enduring and self-correcting. And this is both the joy of doing systems work and also the pain in the ass of it. Because, you know, when you think about teams and organizations as systems of systems, like if it's an organization of big organizations, it's systems of systems. Charlie writes in his book, belonging is created or destroyed by the daily habits of a team. Team habits implicitly communicate the real values of the team. A team might espouse lofty ideas like inclusion, accessibility, equity, or bringing your whole self to work. But those ideas don't mean anything if the team habits effectively reinforce hierarchy, power hoarding, or one right way. When you start pushing against perfectionism, when you start pushing against that um, power is automatically hierarchical and that there's only one version, if you start pushing against that there's only one way of being a good leader in the world. When you start pushing against a lot of those things, it opens up space for actual true contributions for people. But it's incredibly uncomfortable because what you are doing, you know, if you look at people who have gone on sort of the collegiate pathway and, you know, they're getting the work when they're 23 or 24, they've had two decades of being socialized that the teacher's right, 
when the bell goes off, you do this. You get in line. Here's the right answer to this. Like they have been socialized in that way. That socialization in American education and work culture is part of the imperialist project. It's a process of assimilation into a particular way of thinking, acting, and working. You know, I was talking to a client about this three weeks ago because she was struggling with the fact that there were, for most things she was trying to train, three different ways in which they can solve the problem. And the team was struggling. They're like, but which one? And she's like, pick one. She's like, but no, which one is the right answer? And they're like, there's not a universal right answer. And she's like, why is this so hard for them? I'm like, hey, you got to remember, they're 23 and 24. Their entire life, there's been one right answer. And now you're telling them that when it comes to their livelihood, that's super important to them. There is no one right answer to the test. And this may be the first time they've confronted that reality. So it's not about the content you're sharing with them. It's about the broader context of the system of a society they've been in. And that's what they're struggling with. And so it might take that person six months or two years to deinstitutionalize and to actually think on their feet. And if you've been in, in the workforce for 15, 20 years and you've been socialized to do things a certain way, we see this happen a lot. Like people in startups, you've seen this, Tara. Like, I'm hiring this person from this big organization. They've done all this before. They've ran huge multi-million ad budgets, or they've done all these sort of things. They're going to be great for my team. And I'm always like, mm. <laughs> we're going to have to hold that one loosely. Because what they're going to be used to is falling in on an existing playbook and falling in on an existing way of doing things and executing within those given constraints. You don't have those. And so you're going to ask them to come and make it themselves. And they have not done that. Or maybe they've done that before and that's how they get the job. But again, they've been socialized to work within a system, to fill in the lines, to do what the manager tells you, to toe the line, and not to be at a place where they could say, you know what, this thing here is not ideal or it's not working for us. I don't have to wait for someone else to solve that. I'm just going to do it. When you do team habits work, you really are unpacking a lot of the implicit workways and team habits and ways of thinking. And some of them are deeply rooted in our society. The system wins. If you don't actually break it down, work on the system, figure out why the system is the way that it is, figure out how to deal with the system trying to self-correct against the change you're trying to make, do that work, the system is going to win and, and replicate itself. That's what systems do. The system is going to win. I see this regularly with small business owners and independent workers. Unless they've broken down the different components of their business and the daily habits of their work to figure out the inner workings of the system, they inevitably reproduce systems as they are. That means marketing, sales, operational, and product systems but it also includes the social and cultural systems that govern work. This is why I'm so passionate about getting to the root of these systems in the context of the future of work. If we understand the systems currently at play, we can dismantle them and make something better. Of course, most of the people you work with, heck, probably you too, aren't quite as interested as I am in the minute details of the broader systems that dictate how we work and what we expect from work. And that's fine. But that said, I think 
all of us would prefer working conditions that are supportive of our best, most remarkable work. At a basic level, that requires us to acknowledge that friction and frustration are signs that there's an opportunity to do things differently, to solve a problem, or as Charlie says, to fix a broken printer. Because we humans tend to seek safety and convenient options, chaos, disorganization, and malperformance tend to be where we go, right? Because we all want to hit the easy button. Um, If enough people in a team hit the easy button, you're going to get broken printers. You're going to get, you know, I'm having a problem, but I don't want to make Tara uncomfortable or I don't want to like give her any feedback because how is she going to take it? Or like, what if she gets mad at me or I'm just trying to get through? So I never share my pieces, which means Tara never shares her pieces. So what do we do? We go and complain to the boss and make them do the hard work and create a triangle that nobody likes. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of me just being like, you know, Tara, this is a hard, like, it's hard to say, but like this little way that we bump into each other really actually is frustrating. Like, can we do something about that? <laughs> right. So I want us to stop hitting some of those easy buttons so that I can be in a relationship with Tara where like, if she says we're running together, she's got my back. I can trust it because if it wasn't true, she would tell me. And she feels the same way. And by the way, that helps everybody because it removes the emotional and social overhead of working with each other, right? How much time at work do we spend just trying to figure out if we're okay with each other? What if we didn't have to worry about that? We can do that in our small team. We may not be able to do that across the organization, but in our team of four to eight people, it's like Tara and Kate and Angela and Steve, like, come on. We can do this together. Yep. Fixing the broken printer or getting the rest of your team on board with changing team communication or project management takes some work. But Charlie doesn't want us to think about this as extra work. I think what we have to shift, though, is the idea that there's getting the work done, i.e. the task and the sort of projects and results and all those sort of things. And this other sort of social bonding, meta, overhead, touchy-feely work, right? There's the real work, and then there's this other stuff. Like, no, it's all work, right? Um, And if you don't believe it, try to do some of that other work that you just said is touchy-feeling or soft, and try try to get good at it, and you'll realize how much work it actually is, right? Um, And also, who in our society gets praised solely for the tasky project work? And who has to do that task and project work and all the other touchy-feely social overhead, you know, bonding work on top of that. So when we think about taskification, when we think about the alienation that can come from work, when we talk about the silos, like, again, sometimes I'll frustrate people, Terry. You know this about me. Because it's easy to place the criticism elsewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. It's easy to look at somewhere over there. They're doing a thing that's creating this thing for me. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to look at your own behaviors and your own patterns and be like, what am I doing and how do I counter that? Right. What's within my own sort of personal power and agency to change? And yes, it's going to be work and labor, but you're already going to be showing up to work and doing labor anyway. It's like, imagine. And again, I just have to put this out there because it feels pie in the sky for some people, but it's like, you know, 
when you work in a team, some of the worst things about working in a team is like all of the uncomfortable, hard conversations that you either have or not having. Mm -hmm. But it turns out if your team gets good at having those conversations, one, they become less onerous and difficult over time. And two, they become less frequent. So if it's already going to be uncomfortable anyways, what are we doing to at least make it a little bit better so that we know that it's not going to be three years of the same bullshit because no one stood up or because I didn't talk to Tara and tell her that this one thing that she does doesn't like it bumps me in a certain way. And we might have did it like most of us would want our teammates and colleagues to tell us that. Yeah. Cause a lot of times we're doing the best we can and we're just doing what's working. We we're like, that's where we are, but we don't do for our individual teammates what we would want them to do for us. Think about where in your communication habits, you can add the humanity back in. Like, what are you going to do to create belonging team habits in meetings so that you learn who your people are and you reinsert that humanity in relationship? In your coordination team habits, how are you going to get that back in? In the way that you look at how you cover for each other and how you like help each other when you fall down, those are your vectors. In Becky Chambers' novel, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, a ragtag bunch of spacers crew the Wayfarer, a deep space tunneling ship. A segment of the crew is human. They're descendants of a fleet of ships that fled Earth's climate collapse. The rest of the crew are from a variety of species from around the galactic commons. Now, if you think navigating human multiculturalism is tough, imagine what working on a multi-species team would be like. That story, in many ways, is a treatise on belonging. First, we see our protagonist, Rosemary, join the crew as a newcomer. Even though she's human, Having been born and raised on Mars, her culture is markedly different from the other humans on board. Plus, she's taking on a new role with a ship family that's had many years to develop their habits and patterns. The crew, for the most part, works hard to help Rosemary feel like she belongs, even when things sometimes get awkward. Chambers also explores how the crew supports each species' unique needs. The pilot, Sissix, is from a species who have scales covering their bodies. She goes through a painful molting period at one point in the story. She's comforted by Dr. Chef, a crew member from a nearly extinct species who is, you guessed it, both doctor and chef for the crew. While he treats her itchy skin, she asks him, do you ever get tired of humans? He replies that he does, and that that's probably normal for anyone who's living with people from different species. Sissix continues, I'm tired of their fleshy faces. I'm tired of their smooth fingertips. I'm tired of how they pronounce their R's. I'm tired of their inability to smell anything. I'm tired of how clingy they are around kids that don't even belong to them. I'm tired of how neurotic they are about being naked. I want to smack every single one of them around until they realize how needlessly complicated they make their families and their social lives and their, their, their everything. Now, Sissix loves her crew, but the differences can easily get old, especially when she's stressed out about other things, like molting. 
Now, the crew doesn't always see eye to eye. They don't always understand each other's needs. But they've developed solid habits around communication and belonging. If one member of the crew is hurt or angered by something another said, they talk about it. They assume there are going to be interspecies misunderstandings. So they are open and honest about cultural and biological differences. Conflict doesn't signal irreparable harm. Conflict is temporary. The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet is the novel that gave me the idea for this series in the first place. Even before I had a copy of Charlie's book, I recognized the thoughtful team habits that Chambers wrote into the story. The crew of the Wayfarer offers a clear-eyed vision of what it might be like to be part of a truly inclusive work family. One in which belonging was a top priority among coworkers. One in which care was part of daily operations. The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet is part of a subgenre of speculative fiction called solar punk. Solar punk stories throw off the common sci-fi device that pits good guys against bad guys in a battle for the soul of the universe. Instead, solar punk stories imagine a world that's more or less in balance. Instead of galactic enemies, there are interpersonal conflicts. Instead of killer asteroids, there are journeys of self-actualization. In this way, solar punk has a quiet, revolutionary energy. It asks, what if things were better for everyone? What if there was more justice in the world? What if we cared more for each other and the worlds around us? It's questions like these that can help us shed some of the imperialist and supremacist conditioning we absorb from the wider culture and forge a culture of belonging at work and beyond. Huge thanks to Charlie Gilkey, as always, for sharing his wisdom and experience with me. Find his new book, Team Habits, at your local independent bookseller, at bookshop.org, or wherever you buy books. Next week, we're going to go much closer to home. As in, we're going to examine housework. And believe it or not, speculative fiction has a lot to say about the home and the work involved in maintaining it. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter. Subscribe at whatworks.fyi, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. 
We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell. <laughs>